So the information is there. I think the question then becomes, the onus isn't on black people to to demonstrate the reality of race. The onus is on people who don't believe that equality should be a real thing to actually educate themselves. Mm-hmm. That, that's how I see it. And that's such a huge problem because, again, again, in popular discourse, well, this group over here, they want a handout. That group wants a handout. They want a handout. No, actually, we don't. We want fairness. We want the country to, to own up to its promises. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. And today I am speaking with uh, Professor Anthony Hazard, who is an ethnic studies professor who researches and teaches about race relations and African-American history. Um, Dr. Hazard earned a PhD from Temple University and a bachelor's in African-American studies at Arizona State. Uh, this conversation was was really, really great. This is one of the, the better uh, conversations where I've learned the most, I think for sure. Um, and we dive into a ton of, of fascinating topics. I kind of tried to frame questions um, from a, a skeptical perspective, uh, thinking about like, you know, what if what if someone doesn't recognize the the importance of, of of racial justice in America, or what if they think that you know racism used to be a problem in the past but uh, isn't anymore? What would you say to someone who says, you know, I'm not personally racist, so why should I why should I care at all? Doctor Hazard had incredible responses to all those questions that are both uh, practical, inspiring, and educational. I also want to, uh, in part, dedicate this episode to the uh, the Kaiser Permanente CEO, Bernard Tyson, who uh, just a couple days ago passed away. Uh, my mom works at Kaiser, and it's a really tragic situation. Um, Bernard was um, a, a great leader and really championed racial diversity in, in the workplace and racial justice um, and was one of the few uh, black CEOs of such a large company. So um, definitely a, um, a shout out to him and all his work. Yeah. And please, please share this episode with with friends and family. Uh, I, I learned a lot just listening a second time. And I think it's it's an episode that we can all come back to, take something away from and um, become better better leaders and better equipped in uh, the fight towards equality for everyone. So yeah, here's the conversation and enjoy. Cool. Well, Dr. Hazard, thanks for being with me today in the sure. podcast. Yes, sure thing. And to start out, I'd, I'd love to know if there was any any moment in your life or any experience that kind of set you on this this track of studying ethnic studies and race relations and kind of how that, uh, yeah, how that came about in, in your life as something you wanted to devote your career towards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say that my time as an undergrad at Arizona State um, I had the opportunity not only to study psychology, 
but then to take classes in what was then a program in African-American studies. So the faculty there, they, they were organizing and working really hard to you know, have that program become a full-fledged department in African-American mm-hmm. studies. But as they were working on that, so this is mid to late 90s, um, as they were you know, taking on that project, um, I began taking classes with professors who were teaching in African-American studies across disciplines, so literary scholars, historians. Um, my main mentor actually uh, is an evolutionary biologist, so I began to you know, delve into the history of anthropology and biology and looking at race from, from that lens. And I would say that my junior year, the courses I took with those folks, it changed everything for me. Um, I just, I was, I was blown away at how race touches so many aspects of our society. And then on a personal level, of course, you know, being African-American, being, and being a student athlete at a predominantly white institution, such as Arizona State, there were things that I was already thinking about in terms of, you know, what, what blackness meant in a space like that. Um, what it meant to be a student athlete on scholarship. Um, and what it meant for, you know, my black professors to be in a space like that and teach like that really difficult stuff um, in that kind of environment. So um, that was just that was just a moment of, of, of transformation for me as a thinker, um, as a young scholar, as a scholar athlete, as a student athlete. And it was, I would say midway through my senior year I knew that you know I wasn't going to qualify for the Olympic team mm-hmm. and I needed to figure out what's something what's track and field okay. track and field cool. yeah um, I was a long jumper okay. so I just it, in conversations you know office hours with with my professors and lunches and, and just different events I just knew that this is where I wanted to end up I wanted to do this work I wanted to be a part of, of that world um, so it was I owe them a lot <laughs> in fact I'm still friends with them there's still a few of them are still mentors um, and it's I mean those are lifelong relationships that were that were built in that moment um, and they, they really changed my life yeah yeah so one kind of bigger question I have on, on the topic of race is I feel like a lot of people might say, oh, the United States, we had a race problem in our yeah. in our history, and yes. then there was the Civil War, and then yes. we've, we've moved forward since then, we right. got rid of slavery, there was the, the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. uh, we're doing better now. Maybe mm-hmm. we're not perfect, maybe there's still police violence or racial tensions, but yes. uh, but why should we be so worried about race? Because aren't, aren't things pretty good now? Like, why does it matter today? Why does, do race relations matter today? Huge, huge question. Um, there are a few ways to, to answer that. Um, I would say, first, if we look at what is happening in politics in the U.S. right now, um, it's clear that race is being deployed in certain ways by certain political figures to curry political favor in in certain quarters. Um, The language, the the heavily racialized language that is being used by the president in particular, um, even when he was a candidate, I think that offers us a clear view of how 
just how embedded race is in our society that that sort of language could resonate with so many people. Um, that's one way to look at it. Another way would be to actually look at certain indices like um, um, family wealth, right? If we look at the, the economic inequalities that exist in this country today, we still find indigenous peoples and peoples of African descent at the very bottom. If again, if we're just looking at data points. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, why is it that black families don't have that kind of generational wealth that other racialized groups do, particularly when we're talking about people of Asian descent and certainly those that we would categorize as white, mm -hmm. right? Why, why do those inequalities exist? Well, there's a long history that got us to this point. And so when folks invoke, you know, uh, let's say the Civil War, mm -hmm. and then when folks invoke, let's say, the Civil Rights Movement, um, were there changes in those moments? Absolutely. Was slavery abolished in 1865? Absolutely. We get the 13th Amendment, we get the 14th, we get the 15th, right? So those Reconstruction Amendments really changed the course of American history. However, what then happens, this is a, a larger challenge that we all have, and that is when we invoke history, we need to do it correctly. So if we're going to talk about the change that comes out of the Civil War, then we need to talk about what then happened in Reconstruction and how Reconstruction ends in 1877 and then the violence that has wrought the destruction of Black communities, um, the implementation of Jim Crow laws that happens because Reconstruction ends, because both Republicans and Democrats essentially turn their backs on Black communities all over the country. So. There is, again, there, there's a historical link here to talk about, yes, the Civil War happened. Yes, slavery was abolished. But what we get after that, very quickly, <laughs> is the states in the South, they're allowed to rewrite their state constitutions. And in those state constitutions, they begin to implement segregation. They implement these systems of oppression that don't go away until 1964, 1965, at least on paper. So if we consider that long, that very long history, let's say from the earliest moments in the colonial period in which laws were put on the books to actually legally regulate the institution of slavery. So we're talking 1660s. 1660s to 1865, that's 200 years. We have the period of Reconstruction, which is 12 years. Mm -hmm. Then from the end of Reconstruction, 1877 to 1965, that's another, what, 90? So 290 years compared to 12, a 12-year 12 period, it would seem logical, right, that we could draw a conclusion that that 12-year period wasn't enough, wasn't long enough to overcome the 290 years in which black people were not treated as citizens, were not allowed to earn wages, were not allowed access to quality housing or education, 
So again, invoking history should mean that we're going to look at all of the history and not just this moment where quote unquote progress was made or that moment where progress was made. So talking about having the intellectual and ethical maturity to actually like look at what American history has been. That's the challenge I would pose to people who say that, well, now it's all good. We got Obama, you know, we had Dr. King, we, we got Obama, we're all good. Well, if we actually look at the history, it just it simply isn't true. And we see it every day in this society, the inequality is still there, it's mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and more on the, the present day moment, like what do you think mm-hmm. are the biggest racial challenges in our modern day? Is it like a policy problem? Is it an implementation problem? Uh, a person-to-person problem? I don't know. I, th- I think that on an individual level, I think certainly, um, you know, folks are more anti-racist today than, let's say, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree with that. Certainly, we, and particularly now, the last, I would say the last five years or so, maybe 10, we see these instances of interpersonal racism occur. Um, and of course, um, you know, the rise of the alt-right, if we still want to call them that. Um, but racists on the right um, have certainly engaged in, in that sort of interpersonal racism and violence. Uh, we know what happened with Heather Heyer, right? Her, her murder. Um, and it was because she was doing anti-racist work, period. So to think that in the 21st century that a white woman could be killed by a white person for being anti-racist, to me, that's just, it's incredible. But that's the reality, the sort of reality that we live in. And so we see that interpersonal racism. But again, thinking about the structures of inequality that have existed in this country again since the colonial period it's clear to me and it's clear to other observers and historians um, that that found those foundational inequalities those structures haven't adequately been dealt with Mm -hmm. and so absolutely there's an absence of policy to address those issues Um, and it's Again, it's going to take it's going to take not only movement from the people, but it's going to take leaders who actually have the guts and the knowledge to try to implement the changes that are necessary. Because mm-hmm. the inequality, the wealth gap, right? We know about the five percent and the one percent at the top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that inequality is actually expanding, mm-hmm. right? And so it. it it does become a moral and ethical question. It simply isn't about a difference of opinion politically. These are moral questions. Why do we still have so much poverty in this country? Um, are there leaders who, who wish to address you know, that that ever expanding poverty? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, these are these are deeply challenging. Um, questions that are troubling in the sense that we haven't, we just haven't had as a nation and our elected officials haven't had the moral and ethical bravery to actually deal with these problems. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if uh, if uh, you had an influential government position, you can make right. some laws. You can start some programs right. uh, specifically with the goal of maybe improving race relations. Uh, how would you How would you go about that? And maybe and how closely would you tie economics mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. improving race relations if you had those magical powers? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's and this is a, a tactic. Um, a strategy that was implemented, I would say, by the United Nations, by other organizations under their umbrella, um, by um, scores of anthropologists and sociologists and historians and psychologists during the 1930s, certainly during and after World War II in the 1950s and the 1960s, and that is trying to educate the people about, certainly about difference but also about our shared humanity. Like, yes, on the outside, we look, we look different, right? We can recognize quote unquote racial difference when we see it, but it's getting to a level of understanding that the very idea of race has been made up by certain people in certain positions of power, again, going back to the colonial period, back to the 18th to 19th century, and so what we think of racial difference really isn't racial difference. What we're seeing is simple biological variation, which only deals with what we see. On the inside, genetically, we know that we're, we're all 99.9% the same. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one strategy, right? Educating people about what race really is and is not. Mm-hmm. Now, that strategy has been tried, <laughs> you know, to, to, to varying um, degrees of success. And that's, that's like one form of anti-racism, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, and I'll quote Dr. King here, um, paraphrasing, this country has written, you know, a promissory note and economic justice not only the, the ability or the legal right for you and I, let's say, to sit at the same in the same restaurant, right? We, legally, we have that right, but that promissory note that hasn't been cashed is the fact that we should have the equal opportunity to earn a living wage, to actually attend schools that offer us. A foundation so that we can then attend university, mm-hmm. go on, really grab a hold, a hold of that so-called American dream. Mm-hmm. So economics, and this is something that that in in certain conversations in public memory, um, it's left out of the legacy of the civil rights movement, and that is economic justice was always a part of black political culture in this country, particularly in the 20th century. And so we might look at, you know, the I have a dream speech and say that we should all be colorblind. And if we just love each other and work together, everything will be fine. There's still millions of poor black people and poor brown people, even though we now legally have the right to go have dinner at the same place. There are millions of people who can't afford have dinner (laughs) at certain places and that is really the crux of what needs to be changed Mm -hmm. you can't necessarily 
And this is something else that Dr. King said, again, paraphrasing, but you can't legislate people's feelings. Mm-hmm. You can pass all the laws you want, right? But that doesn't mean that people are going to change in terms of how they feel about people who look different than them. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden, you know, 350, 360, or 70 years of economic exploitation and oppression mm-hmm. is going to be changed, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a law now. So economics is, is <laughs> it sits at the core of not, not race relations, mm-hmm. because that's interpersonal, um, but racism, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's always been about economic exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has to be addressed. Someone, somewhere, if it were me, that's what I would be working for. If I had those magical powers, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that would be it. Yeah, it has to be addressed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and in, in addressing those economic and racial issues, how much, uh, how much personal agency should be yeah. required from people who have been marginalized um like to you know to what extent is it making the quote-unquote american dream accessible and you you have to go get it yourself versus Mm -hmm. like you actually just deserve to to get ahead in some way because you've started Mm -hmm. the race Mm -hmm. behind Mm -hmm. how do you how Mm -hmm. do you think about that i think that it's it's kind of a myth that black and brown people in this country haven't always worked extremely hard <laughs> um, again we're, we're, it's if we if we just look at that 200 year period before this nation was a nation and then when the nation became a nation in the early republic you know it you still we still have 75 years of the vast majority of enslaved black people not being able to earn one red cent for their labor not being able to own property um so again it black and brown people have always always worked Mm -hmm. very hard haven't been compensated so there isn't really a problematic it isn't problematic right because we continue to work Mm -hmm. so if let's say um who is the, the the presidential candidate who's offering who's in his platform offering the thousand dollars a month Andrew or something? Yang. So Yang, yeah, yeah, right. So Yang. So to to consider um, if Yang wins <laughs> and he's able to implement this program, <laughs> right? The thousand dollars isn't he? The, this one thousand dollars a month would be given to people who have always worked, and if it's for every family in the U.S., that's fantastic mm-hmm. um but this idea that that black folks in particular um haven't attempted to pull themselves up mm-hmm. by their you know the term bootstraps mm-hmm. um that that very notion is just a myth mm-hmm. um and it's and it's and if we look at if we think about you know there's a lot of misunderstandings uh, around the term affirmative action in the actual policies. We know through research that in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, the group that benefited the most from affirmative action was actually white women, Hmm. right? But if we think about, you know, trying to somehow implement policies that would bring about equity, 
black folks who are the descendants of folks who were enslaved started this, to use the metaphor, race, mm-hmm. right? Not with boots that had bootstraps, but with completely with no boots, mm-hmm. right? So how is it even possible for a family, let's say, whose ancestors were brought over and worked on a tobacco farm in North Carolina for four generations, accumulating no wealth, owning no property, right? How does that then impact the subsequent generations? We, we know, we can measure that. So this idea that black and brown folk will just be given something, <laughs> actually we're owed something. If we think about how, how valued work ethic and, and labor is right and that's again having the guts to be honest about the history of this country mm-hmm. so there are some who would say well that happened a long time ago it doesn't impact us today mm-hmm. well again i can point you in the direction of so many websites that track that have tracked generation of wealth mm-hmm. the lack of home ownership all of these things that are simply data points they are simply facts mm-hmm. So the information is there. I think the question then becomes, the onus isn't on black people to to demonstrate the reality of race. The onus is on people who don't believe that equality should be a real thing to actually educate themselves. Mm-hmm. That That's how I see it. And that's such a huge problem because, in, again, in popular discourse, well, this group over here, they want a handout. That group wants a handout. They want a handout. No, actually, we don't. We want fairness. We want the country to to own up to its promises. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in thinking about how a, um, a a white person in particular, or mm-hmm. any person, maybe mm-hmm. someone's a college student, maybe mm-hmm. you're a forty year old with mm-hmm. a job, mm-hmm. and you say, "Hey, I, I recognize racism is a problem, but I don't mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. I just live my life. I mm-hmm. work my job. I go to school. Mm-hmm. What what mm-hmm. can I do in my daily life to work towards racial justice? What would you say? That's a great and timely question. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, read as much as you can. Um, don't run away from from debates um, when things happen in your life. If you are, and this is an example I use in my classrooms. Um, when you are at holiday dinner with your family and someone says something that's really racist, well, that's an opportunity to engage. And the point isn't necessarily that you are going to change your uncle or aunt's mind or something, but you yourself will gain experience in talking about the problem because that that silence, right, that it, it's, it's so huge. Um, because again, yes, Certainly, someone who might be a white person who doesn't view themselves as racist, um, but is unwilling to actually talk about the issue, like that silence is just as damaging as someone who is actively racist, saying racist things. Um, So I would say, have the conversations, challenge yourself, challenge family members, challenge friends, educate yourself, read. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> we live because we learn, mm-hmm. right? And so it, simply accepting that 
you are not racist and the problem is over there um, the, or the problem is in Chicago or the problem is in Baltimore um, you know it's poverty and it's and it's black neighborhoods actually there are probably people of color in your life who are experiencing those challenges so why not why not say I'm going to challenge myself to do something mm-hmm. um, but there are certainly there are folks I, I have friends you know lifelong friends who move to the suburbs you know their kids are doing great in their private high schools and and there have been really tough conversations because I challenge I challenge my white friends who particularly don't engage mm-hmm. and it's like this is it's not way over there mm-hmm. <laughs> and one day our children and nieces and nephews are going to grow up to be adults who are involved in quote unquote diverse workplaces and so if we don't know ourselves how can we help educate our children and nieces and nephews um and it's sure you can live in in your gated community and such and such and such and such but all of this is happening and we can try our best those of us who wish to have that comfort um we can try to separate ourselves from these conversations and debates and realities of race mm-hmm. um but i would I, i'm not a betting person but if i were i would wager that at some point in your adult life race is going to touch you mm-hmm. right um and if you care about communities that surround you and this country mm-hmm. then you know you might want to challenge yourself mm-hmm. to do something mm-hmm. even if it's just the preliminary step of educating yourself of reading um you know listening to folks that you may not listen to <laughs> watch certain tv shows mm-hmm. um if you're if you follow fox news okay maybe you want to actually like check out msnbc mm-hmm. um listen to to fan jones or something right make, just mm-hmm. make some kind of effort and i would say that that's again this is just preliminary but but it it really has to be from within again it's mm-hmm. it's it's a dual burden or an extra burden for black people people of color um to take up this mantle of having to educate their white friends or white coworkers or white colleagues about this stuff because we're already dealing with it on a daily mm-hmm. basis now some of us choose <laughs> you know to to work in this field and do that work but um that's just some of us not not every person of color is like a scholar of race mm-hmm. um so yeah, at some point, you know, white folks are going to have to challenge themselves mm-hmm. to say, okay, um, this actually matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think a lot of people are maybe maybe want to contribute mm-hmm. and make mm-hmm. a positive change with mm-hmm. their life, but they're scared. They're mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm white. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm yeah. going to step yes. on someone's toes. It's yes. easier to just step back and right. say, like, let's let other people do this work. Yes, and and and, and so we could again look to history and um, recognize uh, that white college students in particular in the 60s decided for themselves that they were going to, you know, join SNCC or go down to Mississippi in 1964 and try to register black folks to vote. Um, 
or um, in 1961, you know, join the Freedom Rides. Um, so there are examples of white people deciding to join this, to get in it actively, right? The effort in and of itself means far more than any, you know, verbal faux pas that might occur. Mm-hmm. It's like really it, putting yourself in action. We have a so-called example of this. And today, um, Showing Up for Racial Justice, I think, is one organization that was created by white people for white people to learn about anti-racist practices. Um, so we we have contemporary examples as well. And it's it's and those of us who work in this stuff, you know, things happen and things are said um, in, in teaching introductory level classes in particular. You know, it's known that students are going to come in with varying levels of knowledge and experience, and that's fine. And so we deal with that within the structure of the classroom because it's about the effort. Mm-hmm. If we focus on the outcome and we focus on someone's feelings getting hurt, someone saying something, <laughs> you know, that's quote unquote inappropriate, we won't get any work done. We have to focus on the effort, the work. And so tell people to come and work. Right, work. That's what we want to do. That's where our energy goes. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just, it's bigger than, it's bigger than um, someone making a comment or using certain language. It's just so much bigger than that. Yeah. So it, it's, it's the work we do every time we step into the classroom in mm-hmm. ethnic studies. Um, and of course, there are others on campus. Uh, I could name several folks who, who do similar if not the same work um but that's what it is you know you have to be willing to dive in the fear can't win mm-hmm. right because it's it, it is scary stuff it's tough it's hard it's emotional um but i would just encourage people to to just dive in take the chance yeah yeah, yeah totally let's say someone listens to this and says yes i do mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. dive in are there any are there any books websites mm-hmm. podcasts mm-hmm. documentaries anything that you recommend if someone <laughs> said hey i want to i want to learn more i yeah. don't feel very educated where should i look first and foremost email me um and it's well because there's mm-hmm. just there's just so much mm-hmm. out there um there's there's so many great documentaries um feature films even, historical works. Um, I would say actually it's a film, it's a documentary series. I showed two of the episodes in my introduction to African-American studies class and it's um, it's PBS, Slavery and the Making of America. Uh, four part series, um, it's just, it's fantastic. Um, narrated by uh, a recognizable voice, Morgan Freeman. So, <laughs> um, so I'm sure people will enjoy enjoy hearing his voice uh, for 60 minutes in four episodes. So I think, yeah, that would be, I think, a, a foundational, you know, place to start. Yeah, mm-hmm. and definitely contact me, email. I'm here. Um, but there's a lot. There's there's so much really good, engaging material out there. Yeah, but it depends on where people want to start mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, just yeah. just a couple of questions to wrap up here mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, 
what piece of advice would you give to an incoming first-year student at Santa Clara? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, take an intro class in ethics studies. Try to get engaged. Learn about student organizations. Take chances in terms of the friends you make. In terms of learning about student organizations, right? It, so challenging yourself to say, well, this is what I did in high school. I was a member of this group and, and that's what I want to continue to do. Challenge yourself to do something different. But definitely take an intro class with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, are there any favorite places you've traveled? I did dissertation research. This was 06 in Paris. That was incredible. It's just an amazing city. Um, food, wine, people. Um, I spent most of my time, obviously, in the archives at UNESCO, but um, my flat was in northeast Paris, um, Belleville, and that community very much immigrant community, folks from North Africa, folks from East Asia, um, folks from West and Central Africa. And I, I just learned so much, mm-hmm. just walking. I would just walk for hours mm-hmm. sometimes. And between interactions with people, my really poor French, um, <laughs> but just meeting people and talking about life, um, it was it was great to see um, that sort of just range of humans interacting in a city like that. And then I, I did go to high school in England, hmm. so that was it was just a terrific time. And um, most of my friends actually um, from the West Indies, so lots of folks from Jamaica. Um, it was like a new world, honestly, um, and, and getting that getting that experience with folks from around the Black diaspora um, did offer me quite a different lens <laughs> through which to understand blackness. It's one thing to read about, um, you know, Black London or or Saint Lucia. Um, but, or Trinidad, but it's, it's something quite different to actually grow up with folks and learn about soccer um, and learn about reggae music and different, you know, different types of food. For me, as an American, you know, from East Baltimore, it was, it was certainly um, a learning experience that I treasure. Yeah, yeah. And if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? <laughs> Oh wow! Um, be honest. Be honest about about where you stand. Um, be honest about what race really is, and every act of kindness, you know, it counts. Mm-hmm. It really counts. Uh, and don't let the fear win. I, I, I don't know. There's so much that, that I could. <laughs> But, you give a whole lecture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Oh, wow. Ideal. Huh. We are in football season. Um, so I'm, you know, I remain a Sun Devil through and through. 
Um, so I would say big breakfast, um, do some reading, go for a run, shower up, get ready for kickoff, which is usually 7.30 for us. And probably we would be playing USC um, and we'd beat them like 49 to seven. So, <laughs> um, and then have some wine after. Yeah, so no grading, no email. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.